Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. From Decrypt Media, this is the Decrypt Daily, and my name is Matthew Aaron. Today on the show, DeFi 101, we talk to Michael Anderson, the co-founder of Framework Ventures, all about the DeFi space. That's coming up today on the Decrypt Daily. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. Today is Friday, January 15th, 2021. As of today, DeFi has $21.6 billion locked up in its smart contracts. DeFi isn't slowing down. But I still think that there's confusion, at least I know I have confusion, about what DeFi is. And that's why we're having this show today. I'm not doing any other news. I will be back tomorrow for our weekend editions, and I will summarize all of the news that happened today, plus more tomorrow. And that'll be Saturday and Sunday. But right now, we're just going to get into the crypto prices and then talk DeFi. I also want to say I'm sorry because I forgot my microphone was not on or I didn't turn on my microphone for this conversation. So my normal audio quality is not there. I apologize, but it was a great conversation and I didn't want to try to do it over. And we already put the lightning in a bottle with this conversation, I felt. So I'm going to play it as is with the crappy audio and just have my apologies throughout the whole thing. But the content is good. Here are those crypto prices. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talks. And I'm recording this at 11.40 Eastern Standard Time. Bitcoin is sitting at $36,093.36, down almost 10% from yesterday, which is still up from two days ago, which was $34,000. So we went from 34 to almost 40 to 36. Ethereum, $1,157, down 4.5% from yesterday. Again, it was 1,000 to 1,200 to 1,150. Litecoin, 140.62, down 8%. Chainlink, 1901, up 16%, about a dollar away from its all-time high. And XRP, 27.7 cents, down 6.6%. Total market cap rate, $971.8 billion, which is down 9%. And we have a BTC dominance of 68%. The top 10 had a little bit of restructuring. We have Bitcoin, Ethereum, Tether, XRP. We have Polkadot at number 5, Cardano, then Litecoin at 7, Bitcoin Cash 8, Chainlink 9, and Stellar 10. And as I said in the intro, please welcome Michael Anderson, the co-founder of Framework Ventures, and we're going to talk all about DeFi. I'll see you after the show. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Excellent, sir. Excellent. You know what? We left last time and you gave me all kinds of good information and I wanted more. So we came back and we wanted to talk about DeFi 101. I have so many questions about DeFi. DeFi is blowing up. Not only is there over $20 billion in DeFi right now, well, people are calling it the future of, well, banking. And I'm like, word? First, just let us know, what is DeFi 101, sir? Yeah. So DeFi, decentralized finance, I think is a fine way of describing it. The, the way that we like to describe it, it is also open source finance. And, and really what DeFi open source finance is, is trying to accomplish is creating open networks, open protocols that financial I- innovation can happen on top of. 
And I think the best way of thinking about it is potentially thinking of it like the internet, where in the 90s, you saw the, the prevalence of all these different protocols, you know, for email, for web hosting, for accessing information, content, commerce, all those major kind of primitives that define what we think of as the internet. Well, now we have, for the first time ever, uh, the ability to have those financial primitives based in protocols as well. And what we saw with the internet was a Cambrian explosion of new ideas. It would make it, you know, a hundred to a thousand times easier for an entrepreneur to come up with, you know, Amazon or Netflix or any of those kind of web one, web two era applications. And so a lot of people in the DeFi space think of this as being web three and, and the ability to have entrepreneurship come in and build on top of these protocols or build their own protocols uh, in lieu of financial institutions creating all of the financial innovation that exists today. Uh, and so that developer ecosystem is really how we think of DeFi and the developers, the entrepreneurs that are in the space that are creating these products, you know, it's, it's the Greenfields opportunity for them to go off and, and make their name. Um, and I, what we're seeing, at least uh, from our perspective, is you see a lot of traditional finance, you see a lot of traditional technology people coming into the space because they recognize that this is kind of the next leg up in terms of innovation uh, and Silicon Valley is hopefully leading the charge there too. All right, so you said innovation, new, web two, web three, web one, all kinds of stuff, but I still don't know what DeFi is. Give us, like, break it down. What is DeFi? How does it work? And how can people benefit from it, I guess? Yeah, DeFi, so previously, if you were an entrepreneur in the space and you wanted to create a new financial product, you would have to go to a bank and you would talk to the bank and say, hey, I've got this new idea for an exchange or new idea for a futures product uh, that maybe, let's say, is based off of, um, you know, the NFL ESPN uh, power rankings every week. And you say, I want to build something that can track my favorite teams and I can bet or I can speculate or I can use those in ways to play games or, or have new applications that are built around that financial product. And previously, you'd have to go to a bank, they'd have to get it registered, they'd have to find enough liquidity, they'd have to work with you for years, it probably cost millions of dollars. And, you know, maybe at the end of the day, you'd have a new financial product. Uh, but now, if you're someone who wants to build that, it, it can happen with Chainlink as the Oracle solution, it can happen with Ethereum as sort of the, the token platform. Um, and if you want to produce that product, you can, you can build it now. Um, and, and so it's hard to say like, what is DeFi? Why does it matter from a tangible perspective? Because really what it means is sort of a, a mindset and, and a developer ecosystem of free creativity. And so we're starting to see some of these traditional financial primitives come into the DeFi space, borrow and, and lend. Uh, you have exchange, you have futures products. And those are things that are traditionally in traditional finance but now we're starting to see them on top of Ethereum, on top of you know, some of these smart contract platforms. And how does that relate to the, the average consumer? You know, I think if we're successful, ultimately DeFi will just become another avenue of growth for traditional finance. And maybe most of the people that are using it don't even know that they're using some sort of decentralized layer on the back end. They just have a new consumer experience that entrepreneurs are leading the charge creating instead of uh, it being you know, one of the top 10 financial institutions in the world. So if I'm correct with this, then DeFi, decentralized finance, is the road or the paths or the freeway of creating new financial products, not a monetary lending system or a monetary system of exchange, just a way to create new products that are outside of the oversight of, say, banks or regulatory bodies. 
So yeah, it, I would say mostly yes. Uh, if you're creating anything new that's financial in nature, you still have to have it regulated. But the fact that you can create it with you know orders of magnitude less cost and less time means that you can put something forward to regulators and say, hey, here's this new financial product that I've built. Uh, it doesn't have to go through Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley to be able to uh, go to their customers. It can be something that goes to the Ethereum customer base. Uh, and you still have to abide by all the rules and regulations, but well, that cycle time is reduced. So that's where you can start to see the innovative aspects come out of this industry. And, and yeah, I, I describe DeFi as really a developer sandbox. It's not really one thing or a platform or a network. It's really just a sandbox of tools that people can come in and, and use to build things. That makes a lot of sense and also clarifies a lot of things, but you said something that was very interesting in there. And you said they don't have to go to Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan, yeah, or JP Morgan and utilize their customers anymore. You can utilize the Ethereum customers now, yet not then when you put Ethereum in place of JP Morgan, what does that make Ethereum? Yeah, and I think of uh, smart contract platforms as being kind of like operating systems. And Ethereum is one of them. Polkadot would be another one. Um, and there's many others. But the idea is you can use kind of the JP Morgan network, for instance, to build an application. And that application maybe is, is sold to JP Morgan customers. And, and maybe JP Morgan sells it to other banking customers. But when you're building an application, you really need to choose the operating system, just like iOS or Android. And if you build an iOS app, you can distribute it through the iOS app store, Android, Google Play Store. But that's sort of the same corollary, I'd say. And, and so with Ethereum and, and kind of the power of Ethereum in and of itself is that it's open source. And because it's open source, it's composable. So it's not really restrictive as much as it is like a JP Morgan business relationship versus a Goldman Sachs business relationship. And that openness is really kind of where we're starting to see the, the exponential returns um, because you have, you know, the Uniswap team, for instance, which is seven to eight, maybe 10 people now, they have more exchange volume than the entire Coinbase Pro product. And it's because they're built on top of Ethereum. They can leverage the Ethereum ecosystem to build uh, just a, a new kind of primitive of exchange. And they don't need 400, 500 people working on a centralized exchange company um, as you would see with Coinbase Pro. And, and so that sort of, that, that's kind of a, a typifying event in my mind of how you can see orders of magnitude decreasing cost um, for some of these powerful things. I guess my question is or was, um, but I appreciate the way that you answered that question uh, because it was part of it, um, but it's also philosophical. When I was in F Denver, I think it was 2019, I saw Andreas Antonopoulos speak. And one part of his speech, and I, he gave it many times in many places, but this is where I saw it, was he was talking about the F fork and comparing it to the, the Bitcoin network. In the Bitcoin network, you do not have a centralized anybody. You, there's no way to stop it because there's no authority figure. You can't just say, hey, turn it off to anyone because there is no one. It's just going and it's going to go until it doesn't go anymore, <laughs> you know, and, and quantum computing, but we can go that in some other time. But the Ethereum network has already proven that it can roll back or change or fork to protect funds, to protect certain things, to uh, see a problem in its network or see unfair or unjust actions, let's say, you know, what happened with the DAO lockup, it showed that it can manipulate its blockchain that creates responsibility, that creates a point of attack for a government that creates a responsibility for people within the Ethereum network. And they've proven that they have that responsibility and take that responsibility upon themselves. So when you said JP Morgan and Ethereum as a juxtaposition, that's my, why my question was, what is Ethereum then? Is Ethereum actually JP Morgan in this case? 
I would say Ethereum is more like the network that JP Morgan would plug into. Um, and maybe in this analogy, something like Consensus, which is a, a company that builds tools and services and, and companies on top of Ethereum would be more like JP Morgan itself. Um, Ethereum is really a network. And, and sure, in 2016, there was a, there was a fork that led to ETH Classic. Um, you know, there were a number of Bitcoin forks early on in their life cycle. Um, and, and I think, you know, the, the industry has matured a lot to the point where even the SEC now is saying ETH is probably sufficiently decentralized. There isn't someone who can control it. There, there may be another fork, there may be another rollback, uh, but I think it's increasing, increasingly unlikely at this point. Um, and so when you have that objective nature, and, and this is the reason why developers choose to build on top of Ethereum as opposed to any of the other smart contracts, if you're building on Solana, there's, you know, a block producer that is, you know, set and chosen, and they're the ones that are building, uh, they're building your blocks for you. And if they turn it off, you know, they they had downtime two months ago. Um, you know, that's a pretty precarious position to be in if you're, if you're building an application that is supposed to be tamper-proof and, and fault fault tolerant. Um, and so with Ethereum, it's the best that's out there. It's getting better every every month with every new upgrade. And ETH2 is, I think, going to be a huge, uh, huge benefactor there um, of that. But yeah, it, it's not perfect. Um, and it, it's just getting better. But it's still the the chosen developer platform for smart contracts. Just the other day, the, the chair of the Office of the Controller of the Currency said something really interesting. I would love to know your take on this. They were equating the DeFi space to self-driving cars, saying this is kind of self-driving banking. Can you, one, elaborate on what that means? And two, do you think that he is correct with that analogy? I, I think if you kind of like squint at it, it's it's generally correct. But, you know, I think with self-driving uh, banks, I, I think that's maybe a headline grabber as opposed to a real kind of tangible example. I, I think what he's really trying to mean is, uh, kind of what I've been describing is that we now have financial innovation that brings society up a level. And maybe we don't have as many cars that crash into each other and maybe not as many people perish in, in those car crashes anymore because now we have self-driving cars. We now have the ability to create an innovative financial institution that doesn't necessarily rely on the 100, 200 year old banks that have existed and, and define what we can and can't do with our either financial freedom or our assets. Um, and, and I think that's kind of the direction that he, he's going. Um, and when you have a new platform like self-driving cars and, and self-driving cars will create new forms of transportation, new modes of, of human existence, new places that people will want to live. And it, it kind of changes a number of major things. I think that's really kind of what we're seeing with finance and, and DeFi and the ability to have you know, an orders of magnitude decreasing of the barrier to entry for new financial innovation that hasn't happened in decades. Uh, that's, that's really the power of what we're seeing here with DeFi. Um, you know, one thing I think I conflate, and it's in, please correct me with this, and I don't, maybe it's a, a piece of it, but again, it's new, new stuff. And I think that we're all trying to wrap our heads around it is talking about DeFi just now, it doesn't sound like what something like BlackFi or Celsius is doing, which is collateralized loans. Is collateralized loans a part of DeFi? Is it totally separate? Is it like a subcategory? Explain that whole relationship to me. Totally. Um, and, and this is where I, th I think, you know, terminology gets, gets in the way of, you know, defining this and, and probably does more confusion than, than benefit. DeFi is really, what it's speaking to is the fact that these are open source protocols and open networks open finance. 
what Celsius is creating in BlockFi, and, and those are both fantastic businesses, is they have centralized crypto lending uh, facilities where, you know, you, as you said, you put in Bitcoin, you can borrow against your Bitcoin. And, and that's a company that you have as the counterparty. Whereas something like Aave or Maker, you can put in your crypto assets and borrow against it, but it's in a completely decentralized way. And so currently you have the delineation as something that's centralized and something that's not. What we think of as the future of, of this industry is you're going to have the commingling of these two layers where Celsius is now giving cryptographic security, uh, cryptographic guarantees to their customers to be able to use a centralized counterparty because many people want to be able to pick up the phone and call somebody, but they also want to know where their assets are and can provably uh, say that their assets are still in this location and you know it's not being used for other purposes like you would see with the fractional reserve model of a traditional financial institution. Before we go too deep down in this, if you could do me a favor, could and you mentioned two companies. Um, well, I mentioned one company. You mentioned another company, Celsius and Ave. Apparently, they have two different business models. Could you just tell me and briefly what the two business models are before we start rolling out? what they do, because I, we don't want to make sure that they're confused. And Aave is an open protocol, which is an open uh, money market. And what it allows is for users to deposit a number of different crypto assets, you know, anything from stable coins to Chainlink to RAPBTC to Ethereum, and then borrow a different asset based off of the collateral that they put in. Um, and th this is sort of a, a, a major primitive in traditional finance if, if you want to be borrowing and lending. And, and if you want to just be lending, you can earn a yield on the assets that you're, that you're sitting on. If you want to kind of use uh, your Bitcoin, you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, but you want to draw stable coins against it, you can use the stable coins for working capital for your business. And, and a lot of miners choose to do this. Um, and when you're an individual, it's maybe easier to go through a, a, an open protocol like Aave. When you're an institution and you have a lot of money that you're putting up, you want to be able to have someone that you can call to say, hey, here's what I want. Here's the terms. If, they, if you're, you know, for whatever reason, your position becomes under collateralized, you want them to give you a call and say, hey, you need to put in more collateral. That, that just kind of is how traditional finance works. And it moves slower um, and less automated than you would see on an open protocol. Um, but they're both generally kind of the same thing. Um, which is borrow and lend. Um, and, and a lot of you know, the differences in the business model is that uh, Celsius or BlockFi will make money off of the assets that are in the platform. Aave, because it's an open protocol and it doesn't need to extract value, doesn't actually make any money off of your assets. So when you put in your assets and you're earning a yield, that yield is directly coming from the people that are borrowing and paying that yield. And there's not some percentage that, that the protocol is taking or, or you know, that, and, and we don't need to get into too deep of that, but generally that's kind of the difference. And, you know, when I think about what Celsius or BlockFi as centralized companies who are incorporating things like Chainlink or incorporating things like uh, actually Aave as, as some of their um, kind of underpinning technology layers, what that really means for us is that you're going to start to see a lot of crypto enabled businesses that look and feel just like a typical uh, you know, technology company or a typical financial institution, but on the back end, they're leveraging Ethereum, they're leveraging DeFi um, in ways that maybe the customer doesn't even know, um, or maybe the customer really wants and specifically knows about and chooses to because cryptography is a lot stronger than, than humans. Um, and, and so that's how I would probably describe the difference. I think the other aspect here is, you know, we're going to start to see more crypto enabled businesses and kind of the co-mingling of these layers where you've got something that looks and feels like a company 
uh, or a traditional company, a, a traditional product instead of an open protocol, but you've got that enablement underneath. And yeah, we're, we're starting to invest in a number of those ideas. Um, and so that's kind of where I see the future of finance, this commingling of centralized finance and decentralized finance. Okay, so just to wrap this up and to summarize this is collateralized loans are a product of DeFi, yet DeFi is the overall protocol to enable these collateralized loan structures. Am I correct? I would say collateralized loans are a product category or a market. And, and DeFi is the ecosystem with which these open protocols like Aave enable that product category to exist. Got it. Got it. Going into the more collateralized loan aspect of it, because I think this is what <clears throat> the average, I guess, normal person listening to these podcasts is kind of curious about is how it would affect like their ability or their lives. Like if this is a new product to take loans out. Do you see that this is going to be a avenue for people in the future to buy cars, to buy houses with, to um, start businesses with, a restaurant, a pizza shop? I, I think we're already seeing that. Um, I think it's still very much crypto native folks that are putting in BTC because they don't want to sell it um, and pulling out dollars because they need to pay for things like a house or a car or, or rent. Um, that's already happening. I think what we're going to see in the future is you're going to start to see um things meld into more traditional means. And, and what I mean by that is uh, identity, creditworthiness, to be able to get to under collateralized lending. Um, you're going to see a lot lower fees just because when I described the, the difference between Celsius and Aave, when you have a rent extraction business model, um, some other protocol that's open and, and doesn't need to have a fee to sustain itself uh, is something that can undercut uh, the costs. So maybe we're going to see lower costs uh, for borrowing and lending, but with the exact same look and feel as you would see if you went to a bank right now. Um, so it, it could go in a number of different directions, but I think right now it's crypto native, it's over collateralized, it's usually crypto asset denominated, um, but that's what's fueling a lot of the excitement and the energy and the activity in the crypto ecosystem itself. And, and that's just a, a very large business in and of itself. I like how you said it's more crypto native people because they have Bitcoin, therefore they have collateral, therefore they can take loans out against the collateral that they have and buy houses or cars or start small businesses or whatever. Um, and to do that, you're going to have to have quite a bit of Bitcoin to be perfectly honest with you. You know, um, it would be 20 Bitcoin right now would be roughly a little under a million dollars, right? Yeah. So, I mean, to get anything substantial, you're going to have to have a, a shit ton of Bitcoin, you know, and that's not what the average person has. Do you think that this kind of system is for everybody in the future? And what would have to change for the normal person to be able to take advantage of or engage in the system? Meaning that, look, what does it say? 60, 65% of Americans don't have a $500 of emerging of emergency funds in their bank account. They definitely don't have enough to collateralize a loan for a house or a business or a car. So is this really for everyone or is it this stratifying the haves and haves nots even more to what they can do with their money? I think in the way that it is constructed right now, it's not for everyone. There's there's no way. I mean, the user experience is clunky. Like I said, crypto native, you really got to be a crypto expert to, to use this stuff. Um, and, and I think that that scares a lot of people off. 
when you send a wire, when you transfer money on Venmo, I think it, you know most people, uh, if not very much all people, don't know what rails that payment is actually running on. Is it running on the ACH network? Is no it clue. A, <laughs> it, you know, a Swift payment. You know, what's a Swift code? Is it a bank wire? How does that all work? Um, and, and I think that we're going to start to see if this industry is successful, as I think it will be. We're going to start to see a lot of that disintermediation of traditional financial networks, traditional payment networks. Um, and most people just won't even know that they're running on crypto rails. Um, and that's the way that it should be. That's the way that it, it has to be. But I also think the benefit of that, you know, if I don't know if you use, you know, any of the major banking or, or financial applications, they're not very good user experiences. And the reason why is because that's not their forte. That's not what they're built for. They just need to function to move money around, to move value around. If we have entrepreneurship, as we've seen with social media or commerce or content applications, you know, the best user experiences create the best winners, the best companies, and, and it's because they have the best products. Well, if we have that level of competition in the financial ecosystem, like we have with open source finance, we're going to start to see a lot more interesting and easy to use and really innovative new products come out. And I think that's actually going to be how we look at this from a consumer perspective. Eventually, it's just going to look like fintech got better, but actually it's really DeFi and open source finance enabling fintech and financial products to just get better. And, and I think that's kind of where what we get excited about every day and, and backing those entrepreneurs is what we do. All right. So I have two final questions here is, since you brought it up, do you know the rails that Venmo is running on? It's correspondent banking. So most of the transfers don't actually go through. But, uh, you know, if, if uh, you send me or I send you $100, it's not like they actually transfer $100 between two accounts. Right. When you withdraw to your bank account, they'll do it over the ACH network. Okay. Yeah. All right. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's kind of kind of how I figured it works. Um, and, and just to finally touch on this last part, again, I really want to emphasize this is that if you believe that the collateralized loan part of DeFi is not for everyone, do you think it can become uh, something for everyone? And then what would have to change for it to become part something for everyone? Is it just going to be more of a traditional banking experience where you have IDs and credit checks and all that crap, and but it's just using the DeFi, you know, and blockchain instead? Is, is that how it's going to be really? Yeah, it will be, I think, for most people. And and I think what you'll have is sort of varying degrees of, of what you want, different flavors of the product that, that different customers want. You'll have the crypto native, non-ID, non-credit check, over collateralized, crypto asset denominated, it, you know, what exists today in DeFi. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, you're going to have maybe crypto asset enabled, but credit worthiness, credit check, identification, verification, and all the things that look and feel like a traditional loan under collateralized, lower APR lending, uh, but maybe it's backed off of your Bitcoin that's custodied in your bank. Um, and so that kind of one end of the spectrum doesn't exist right now. And so what we have is really just kind of, you know, it, it, to traditional finance, it looks like a toy. It doesn't really work that well. It's inefficient. It's, it's too costly. Uh, but that's how industries start. We start at the low end and we move our way up. Uh, and that's kind of the process that we're going through right now. Michael Anderson, co-founder and partner at Framework Ventures. Thank you very much for coming on and talking DeFi with us, man. Appreciate it. Matt, thanks for having me. Great to chat. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Decrypt Daily. Please remember to go to Apple Podcasts, like, subscribe, share, and leave us a comment. I look for those comments to let me know how I'm doing. But if you don't want to leave a comment about how I'm doing, you can also email me at matthewaron at decrypt.co. I'll see you tomorrow. Happy hodling.